Welcome to the Down and Under podcast by Barton Hartshorn, read by me, Barton Hartshorn. Part 4. Cricket Ground Coffee. Melman is Lebanese. If you like, you can picture the animated hypochondriac giraffe from Madagascar, but this Melman is short, dark, and he has no spots. Perhaps the only similarity is that like his cartoon namesake, he's far from home and is no longer sure where home is, having moved around from America to Syria to Argentina and now to Australia. So why did you leave Lebanon, I ask? He stands there, milk jug in hand, eyebrows raised. Did you really just ask me that question? He inhales loudly. His gestures are all exaggerated. He'd be great at street theatre. Mm, let's see. Mm, uh, religious extremism, shit wages, prejudice, conservatism, parents who disapprove of me, ten hours electricity a day. Need I go on? As the cricket match gets underway, he teaches me the finer points of baristering. Australians like huge cups of creamy, frothy stuff with a bit of coffee at the bottom. It's definitely an art. If you like yours grey with grainy bits floating on the surface, then you'd have loved my first few attempts. Luckily, there's a lull in service while the punters find their seats in the cricket ground, so I get a crash course from an expert while we chat. I'm a chef, really, he tells me. What are you doing here, then? I can't stand that kitchen environment anymore. I'd end up killing myself or somebody else. He was born in a country he loathes and trained in skills he hates. This industry has a habit of collecting lost people. We're all just passing through, and that's what we loudly and confidently tell anyone who'll listen. We're all actors and musicians waiting for a break, people taking time off from another trade, and students paying our way around the world. We cling to the word temporary, like a flotation aid. According to George Orwell, all Parisian waiters are saving up to open their own restaurant. Hope is the key. Occasionally, though, due to some quirk of fate or wrong turn, some of us get stranded. Melman is one of them, and after 15 years he's starting to despair. Hospitality is no place for men in their thirties, he says. Deep breath. I decide it's time for my 15 minute break, so I skirt around the edge of the cricket ground and watch the brightly dressed players run onto the pitch, and the wickets that flash after every ball is bowled. I must say I'm glad they found a way of livening this game up a bit. I'm musing on how far the game has come from its village green and cucumber sandwiches origins when someone taps me on the shoulder. So I turn round. Hello, I'm your boss, says the dark blue suit. Pleased to meet you, I'm Barton, I say and put out my hand. He's taken aback, but basic etiquette dictates he cannot refuse. I'm the second highest ranking person in the company. I'm the second highest ranking person in the company. He says this twice, so he's either recently promoted and excited about it, or he's a dick. Reluctant handshake now over, he tells me to return to the staff area and not to stray again. And don't mingle with the public, he adds for good measure. My service industry uniform has dropped me down into some sort of untouchables class, and it brings to mind a line from a Kaiser Chief's song but you work in a shirt with a name tag on it, drifting apart like a plate tectonic. And I drift back to Melman, only to find that he's closed up the coffee shop and we're now on bar duty, pulling pints for the rest of the evening. I'll be an expert in all types of froth by the time I leave this place. 
Down and Under Part 5. A day at the races. Don't expect too much, darling, because believe me, it'll be as boring as batshit. Brett hasn't looked up from his phone for ten minutes. He's keeping up on world news and doing his best to deflate my excitement. We lucked out on this bar shift, a grandstand view at the races from an air-conditioned corporate box, while our colleagues get sweaty, trackside pie and beer tents. It's a hot and dusty day, and Brett and I are lording it over the world in our little executive bubble. Oh. My. God, says Brett, and nearly drops his phone. The Pope's resigned. Cue a mock acceptance speech in which Brett declares himself Gaius Maximus I and introduces a whole new range of incense to the Vatican gift shop. I'll have to brush up on my 13th century dogma, but it'll be amazing with a capital Z. This surprising upturn in the job market has perked him up no end, and suddenly a day at the races doesn't seem quite so bad. He grabs a tea towel and starts to polish glassware as the high rollers begin to arrive. Fifteen minutes later, most of the room is taken up with large ladies' hats. Read that how you will, as both meanings are applicable. As the first race thunders past, the opera glasses come out and I feel a bit like an extra in My Fair Lady. The men examine the odds, place the bets and consume beer in that most Australian of inventions, the stubby holder. A nasty piece of neoprene foam that you slip your beer can into. The women, meanwhile, sip champagne or Kahlua and milk and talk about which school they went to, which school their children go to and which school their unfortunate friends' children are obliged to go to. This is a constant Melbourne obsession, like the weather for the Brits, upcoming doctor's appointments for the French or annual salaries for the Americans. Pre-lunch drinkies out of the way, the food is served with great pomp and ceremony by a trio of elderly ladies who look like the Andrews sisters. But it's Brett who supplies the vocal oohs and ahs, and they take an instant liking to him and leave no end of tasty morsels on the bar for our clandestine consumption. We knock back petit four and party pies in between drink services and eagerly eavesdrop table conversations like a pair of word-hungry magpies. Yes, but then Carla's always gone for a bit of darky, hasn't she? Rupert boils them up twice a week. And she promised me she wouldn't forge them any more. The sun blazes outside, and the thundering thoroughbreds are increasingly ignored by this lightly plastered crowd. Meanwhile, Brett has made a new friend. One minute, he's expertly pouring champagne for a man with a record-breaking quadruple chin, and the next he's as good as sitting in the lap of a nice portly lady at the back of the room. I was too far away to hear the extensive exchange, so I had to ask. What did she want? She wants someone to shampoo her poodles. And what did you say? I said, what are your poodles called? So, Chatty Dog and Pom Pom. I mean, how hard can it be to shampoo a poodle? I gave her my number. She said she'd call later. Unbelievable. From Pope to Poodle Washer in three hours. Alcohol slowly but surely loosens tongues, and manners come tumbling after. What started off as a polite crowd has turned a little rowdy and pushy. You'd think this only happens in the beer tents, but rudeness doesn't follow class lines. Oi, where's my wife's Kalua and milk, mate? It'll be on your head if you don't ask nicely. Mate. 
a late attempt to order, is made with the arrival of the Australian racing icon Gay Waterhouse, who, although initially famous for acting in a Doctor Who episode back in the Dark Ages, then married into money and became horsey girl number one. They listen politely as she speaks and even applaud, but most of this crowd are past comprehension. The state they're in, Brett could give a well-received speech. Their chauffeurs are already warming up the engines in the dusty car park below. And anyway, it's nearly time for cocktails at home. We wipe down, we clear up the bottles, we cork the champagne, and we walk back to the car. Job well done. Brett leans on the bonnet and lights up his first ciggy of the evening. Ah, the sweet, sweet nectar of late-stage emphysema. He practically inhales the entire thing in one go, then pulls out his vibrating phone. Aha! Poodle lady! Down and Under, Part 6 The Washed Up Blues A tiny piece of finger is lying on the chopping board amongst the tomatoes. It belongs to me. I've been on the job approximately 12 minutes, and the fact that I was given a proper chef's outfit duped me into believing that I could slice and dice as speedily as the bona fide chef working opposite me. That was a close shave. The clothes, it would seem, do not, in this case, maketh the man. I thought my blunder had gone unnoticed, until Charlie, the true pro, leans forward and says, Fold your fingers under your knuckles like this, or you'll do yourself a permanent injury. Wise words indeed, and not a moment too soon, as a dozen more boxes of tomatoes are duly delivered. It's a hot, hot day, and we're out in the country, catering for a music festival where washed-up Australian stars from the 70s and 80s prove that they've still got it, and in some cases, quite the opposite. The bands veer from Noise, Angel, to Tuneful, Ross Wilson, and cover most of the ground in between, probably get hate mail for saying this, but the Australian music scene from this period was like a sort of bubble travelling roughly five years behind their European and American counterparts. Don't get me wrong, there was some great stuff. Sometimes it sounds like radio waves from the rest of the planet took a few years to get here. The crowd out in the field looked like they spent a few years getting here too, and have set themselves up for the afternoon with picnic rugs, eskies, that's iceboxes, and full-strength sunblock. It's not the sort of day you'd choose to be cooped up in a metal box with ovens going full blast, and yet that's exactly where we are, preparing lamb souvlaki, chicken schnitzel, and other such fast food dressed up in fancy foreign names. Twice in the last five minutes, delivery boys have run in and said, Chef, where do you want this? And, Chef, how long till the lamb's ready? And I haven't reacted, thinking they were talking to someone else. Like a method actor, I need to believe in my role. So under my breath, I repeat over and over, I am a chef, I am a chef, I am a chef. I doubt Brando had the same problem. Cody has yellow bovine teeth, enough for at least three people. He could eat through trees at the weekend if he ever needed some extra cash. He's as wide as an oven, he has forearms that twitch like trapped baby seals, and has a jaw borrowed from a Mayan statue. I suspect that Cody is in fact a transformer toy. Slide his jaw out, swivel the arms round, rotate his midsection and he becomes a forklift truck. He scares the pants off me, 
and the huge, dripping blood rose tattoo on his neck is pure overkill. In the name of balance and irony, it should be a puppy. What you do? he asks. I do lamb, say I. Do lamb faster, says he. Where are you from, Cody? No talk, just get on with lamb. Well, I tried. And at least he doesn't insult me or clip me round the ear. He must have missed that class at Catering College. For this is the norm in kitchens. You've seen it on TV with the celebrity chefs. And believe me, they're not making it up for the cameras. This is how they operate. Relentlessly, at full volume, as though they're in an armaments factory supplying frontline troops. It's a frantic, sweaty, discourteous world that encourages a macho demeanour fully adopted by the women working here. If you take your legally required break, you're a wimp. If you need food, you're weak. Should you show signs of flagging through the punishing 14 hours standing in a kitchen shift, then you're in the wrong profession. I wanted the uniform with chef written on it. Well, now I've got it, along with everything else that goes with it. I begin to wonder how some of the kitchen pros put up with it. So I make a mental note to ask one later when we're back on the road. Meanwhile, Cody, with his X-ray transformer vision, has seen right through my knife-sharpening ploy. You time waste. You warned. We need more lamb. We're running out, I offer as an excuse. We run out lamb. We cook you. Down and Under, Part 7. Back on the road. Lions, says Charlie. What about lions, I ask. But he doesn't reply. He puts his magazine down and stares out the window. Looks sad. The giggling late teens who were so chatty and boisterous on the way to the festival have all passed out, mouths gaping. We're heading back into Melbourne now, work shift over. I'm about to doze off myself when Charlie begins to speak. He opens his hands and stares at them as if assessing their worth. Last year I did this job for a reason. Take my kids on holiday to Canada, see their mum, do some skiing, spend some time together. You know, you can put the hours in, do any amount of shit when there's a good reason. Do this chef, do that chef. Chop vegetables for ten hours straight, no problem. Head down, just get on with it. I can do that. He turns his hands over and inspects the backs. This year is just to survive. You do this full time then? I ask. Nah. But my other job don't pay enough, so it's kitchen for me. I used to enjoy it more. I mean, Christ, I've seen the world thanks to this profession. I jumped on board Greg Norman's yacht when I was 22. Went to Europe as his chef. Italy. French Riviera. From Melbourne? Nah, from Perth. Different mentality back there. Back then we could do anything. The whole can-do thing, you know, it's who we are. Not like over here. People over here just sit, wait for handouts. Give me this, give me that, I deserve it and so on. Fucking whinging Aussies. Not like back home. So Perth's different then, I ask. Ah, fuck yeah. People from Perth, we can do anything. We don't need any help to do it. Makes me sick the amount of money this government gives away. Country's diseased to the core, and all they do is give away what's available to the whingers. I've never been given anything in my life. Had plenty taken away. Never asked for it or got anything for free. So what was the French Riviera like in the 80s, I say? Ah, just crazy. 
Slept my way through European women, French, Italian, Portuguese. I was young, you know, had a ball. We birthed in Nice for the season. I even worked on Bowie's boat for a while. Cooked up some grub for famous types. Tried to get jobs on some of the French boats, but it was always, are you French? No work here. Fucking snobs they were. How long did you do that for then? Uh, about three years. Then moved back. Went in with a mate who had an idea about importing TVs from China. How did that work out? We're fucking kings of the universe for about a month. Made a hundred grand with one shipment. Lost it all on the next. We were green, just kids. Got eaten alive. So you've been chefing ever since then? On and off, on and off. Keeps pulling me back in, you know. And the pay's good, the pay's good sometimes, and it's better than sitting on my ass with my hand out. Charlie is what's known as an Aussie battler. I'd heard the term before, and he was a living, breathing specimen. Right wing, with a solid belief in working his way through unfavourable odds. The Aussie battler shuns weakness and despises what he perceives as the whinging masses, who believe the world owes them something. Personally, I have a problem with this approach, as it defines a successful life as one where you don't complain about your own lot, but you do a hell of a lot of bitching about everyone else's. Emotions are also something to be suppressed. So I was surprised when he talked openly of his recently ended relationship. I still love her, my ex-girlfriend. So why'd you split up? Everything was going so well, you know. Twelve years we'd been together. Then she got this thing in her head that she wanted to raise lion cubs. Mad idea, really. So what happened? She fell in love with the lion cubs and fell out of love with me. The Down and Under blog, short stories, book reviews, videos and music can all be found at bartonhartshorn.com. You can also listen to my music on any of the streaming platforms. Thanks for listening.